James chapter 1. While you're grabbing your Bible, let me tell you what your kids are doing in the back. Thank you, uh, Ricky, worship team. A slimmed down version of our worship team today. I'm not saying you lost weight or anything. I'm just... Uh, Let me tell you what your kids are doing. Miss Cassie, our uh, big kids corner worship leader extravaganza person. She is uh, she's keeping the kids in the big room this morning. They have completed two of the sections of their current curriculum. Uh, The curriculum is follow you. They're learning about what it means to follow the Lord. And the first section was being devoted to prayer. And they learned the basics of what prayer is. And then they moved into the second section, which they just finished up, devoted to his word. And they learned about reading God's word and what God's word is and what it's for and what it does. And uh, they've got a couple memory verses. And so today she's reviewing those first two sections with them before they go into the final section devoted to his house. So you're going to be able to talk to your kids about what it means to go to church, why we go to church, why we join a church, why we're part of a church, what it means to be committed to a church, what it means to 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 find the right church, et cetera, et cetera. So I I wanted to remind you that they were uh, they're wrapping up those first two sections. And uh, also challenge you, most every week your kid comes home with uh, one of these type worksheets, and at the bottom there are parent questions. It's kind of uh, take home, let mom and dad see what we did. It was kind of the theme or the point for the day in regard to prayer, whether it was God's word. And then at the bottom there are questions that you can ask your child. I hope you're doing that. At the top of each one of their sheets is their memory verse. They've had two memory verses, one for each section, devoted to his, uh, devoted to prayer. They had... Um, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, and so you can review that with them, and if you don't know it, it's on the top of every one of their worksheets, all right? And they're doing pretty good. I asked Grady uh, this morning, uh, the current one that they just finished up being devoted to his word, which is Hebrews 4, 12, and uh, he, he nailed it. He got it done. I said, hey, you want to come up in front of the church and do it? He said, no way, man. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, that's what your kids are doing this morning. They're wrapping that up, and they're about to start the final section of this. And then in the fall, they're going to go into the new curriculum, which is a similar format, but they're going to uh, be learning under the theme, Tell the World. And so they're going to learn about Jesus and his resurrection and what it means to tell other people about our Jesus. And so they're, they're, doing, a, they're doing an awesome job back there. I thank, thank all the workers who are back there. Um, we are in the book of James. If, uh, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. We've been in it now for about three weeks, and uh, we're plugging through the first section here. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles under the seat just in front of you. Some people ask every now and then why I don't put it up on the screen. I don't put it on the screen because I want you to bring your Bible, and I want you to mark it up in your Bible so you can take it home and have your Bible with you. You can't take the screen home, so I'm not going to put it up there. I want you to bring your Bible, all right? So here's where we've been in the book of James thus far. We saw that uh, the author was James, who is Jesus' little brother, right? And that was an interesting fact in and of itself, that Jesus' little brother has got something to say to us and, and, and what wealth it would come from, you know, growing up with the Messiah, right? But he never flaunts that. You remember, he never says, I'm the little brother of Jesus. He just goes right in and he calls Jesus his 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 Lord, he is a bondservant of God, and his Lord is Jesus. This is his his brother. All right? And then in verse 2, we saw that uh, whether we like it or not, we will be surrounded by difficulty in this life as believers. Right? Amen? Good news? <laughs> I mean, not really. It's not really good news. But in a sense, it can be good news. I, I'm so glad, and you should be as well, that the Bible tells us the truth. It tells us 
not that everything's going to be glamorous and everything's going to be without trouble, but it tells us we're going to have trouble. And so in a sense, that is good news. It's good news for the believer that, that when you're out there living your life and things aren't going perfectly, the Bible doesn't say that it should be contrary to that. The Bible says, yeah, you're right on track. And James comes along in verse 2 and says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when, not if, you encounter various trials, because we will. And then in 3 and 4, he says, here's where we need to, here's the thinking, here's the theology behind those trials. We can consider it joy because of the possibility that it is both proving and maturing our faith as we remain under the load of the struggle, building our spiritual endurance. That's the, that's the point. And then 5 through 8, he says, if you need wisdom for that struggle, like if you don't get how God builds you in your spirituality, if you don't get that he puts more weight on you sometimes so that you can bench press that more weight, because it's, 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 it's like getting stronger physically. Until you put more weight on the bar, you're not going to get any stronger. And it's, an, it's a great irony that you put heavier weight on than you can actually do so that you can actually do it one day, right? But if you don't get that, if you don't understand how that process works of verses 3 and 4, that God is about building into us an endurance, a spiritual maturity, a spiritual growth process. If you don't really get with that and it's not sitting well, he says in the next verse, just cry out to your father. He longs to help those who are his faithful and obedient children. He longs to bestow wisdom upon you. Not just general wisdom, but wisdom for the circumstance, wisdom for the struggle, wisdom for those various trials that are there to test and shape and build endurance and build maturity and perfection into you so that you become into the likeness of Jesus, the firstborn among many brethren. That's the goal. And if you don't really get that, if it's a struggle for you, if the struggle you're in is too much for you, he says, cry out to God. And God is, in a sense, at the edge of his throne waiting for us to cry out. And he wants to bestow wisdom in the situation to us. That's good news, 5 through 8. And then 9 through 11, he took a little bit of a turn, but I'm glad he did. He says, no matter what your status is in life, whether you're going through a lot of struggles right now or whether you feel extremely blessed and everything is going great, Whether you're way up here or way down here, listen, in the end, it all balances out, right? Because like the the flower fades when the sun comes out, all this temporary stuff is just that. It's just temporary. And so there will be this great equalizer called death one day, and we all stand before God, and we all then enter into eternity, not based on our status in life, but based on our status in Christ, And so don't worry if your life is down here because of major struggles right now. That says nothing of your eternity. And if your life is way up here in much the same way, that says nothing of your eternity. That doesn't mean that you're bound for heaven. There's humiliation in both situations. right. So if you find yourself today amidst those struggles, you don't have to feel like God has shunned you. You don't have to feel like you're a second class Christian, like you're JV Christian. 9 through 11 are good news. And then in 12, he gives us a promise. Remember? Promise of reward. That these struggles we face in life are not in vain. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Which the Lord has promised to those who, big, big phrase, those who love him. He sums up. The person who is able to remain under the load and go through all that we go through in this life and to deal with all that we deal with, 
He says the guy who is able to remain under that is the guy who very simply indicates by his life that he is a lover of Christ. He's not just a so-called Christian. He's not just a church attender. He's not just a a believer. He's not just a Christ follower. He's in love with Jesus. And the guy who is in love with Jesus, he endures. He makes it through because he's not a fair-weather Christian. He's not just there for the blessing. He's not just there for the status up here, but even when the status, even when the lot in life is down here, his trust is in his love for Christ and Christ's love for him. Good news. We get the reward. We get the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, which, by the way, one day, that crown is not just for you. That crown will be thrown back at the feet of of Jesus, the Lamb. When the Lamb is shown in Revelation, we take our crowns, the crowns you earn here with the rest of your life in Christ, and we toss them at His feet. And we sing, Worthy is the Lamb to be praised. The one who is slain now gets glory. And so those crowns that you earn here by enduring those trials, guess what? Those are crowns you get to gift back to the one who loved you first. Great picture. So, now where does He go? He's still dealing with this fact that we will face difficulty in his life. And then the verses 13 through 18, he's going to wrap up this section. Here's what he does. James now goes from the positive implications of what these trials do in our life to really a negative perspective on those trials. When we face various situations in life that we have the potential to both prove and grow our faith, we must also realize that there is the unfortunate potential that the trial becomes our downfall, so to speak. All right, so it works like this. The trial, verse 3 and 4, 2, 3 and 4, as he told us at the beginning, it has, this, it has this awesome opportunity to work in our life a benefit, a spiritual growth. But now he's going to say, guess what? If you don't remain under the load, if you don't let it do its work, if you don't let it perfect you, guess what? You can go another direction with this trial. And the trial, he's going to say, turns into a temptation. And the temptation leads to sin. And so what has been this trial that could be a very positive thing in the life of a believer, now he says, listen, it can go wrong as well. It can turn into temptation, which can lead you to sin. James has been using the word translated temptation or trial in the previous verses, as a noun. But now he's going to use it in the verb tense to highlight not the opportunity for growth, but the potential for sin. Every difficult thing, listen to this, every difficult thing that comes into my life either strengthens me because I obey God, verses 1 through 4, and stay confident in his care and power, verse 5 through 12, or it leads me to doubt God and disobey his word. That's what we're going to see in 13 through 19. The difference between a trial and a temptation here, guys, It's how we respond. It's how we respond in the situation. Every trial has the potential to become a temptation. You see that? It's interesting how James deals with the fact, uh, with that fact in this passage. He doesn't just talk about now the process for temptation, falling into sin, etc. He doesn't just he doesn't just deal with the, the the process like of how that happens. He's primarily concerned that we understand the theology behind the temptation to sin. Specifically, the who is to blame question. Specifically, the who is to blame for our falling to temptation. 
I mean, it's an interesting question, right? It's a question that James knew would arise as he wrote the text. There's always been, in sinful humanity, the inclination to blame our sin on someone, anyone other than ourselves, right? I mean, that's always been a part of us. We've always seen that. The most fantastic excuse we could come up with, right, uh, is that it would be God's fault, right? I mean, we want to blame somebody other than ourselves for our own sin, but the most amazing, fantastic person we could blame would be God, right? And we do this. We do this. Uh, my boys are great at this. Uh, they run into something. They're not paying attention. They're running full speed, and they run right into the wall. And whose fault is it? It's the wall. The wall jumped out and got them. Now, I couldn't use myself for an example because I never do this. I never get mad at the coffee table because I stub my toe on it, etc. You, you never do this, right? We couldn't use any of you as an example, right? No, it's just children who get mad at inanimate objects, right? And use uh, language beyond their years to lash out at whatever it was that jumped out and caused them to injure themselves. Grady is, is great at this. No matter, no matter what it is, he injures himself on it. And he wants to, his first reaction, and this is evidence of depravity, if you need evidence of depravity. Uh, his first reaction is to swing on whatever it was that got in his way. Coffee table, corner of the wall, whatever it is. Stupid table. And again, we, I never do this, or I would use myself as, a, as an example, right? But, but kids do this, we do this, right? I mean, we want to blame anything. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter whose fault it was. We want to blame someone else. And this goes all the way back to the beginning, right? Yeah? All the way back to Genesis. It's been the story from the start. God confronts Adam in the garden. And who's, who, who's to blame? Adam, what happened? This is the woman. And you get the idea that God's not buying that. And he, as soon as he says it, he realizes that that's dumb. He can't just blame her for his sin. And so what does he add on to that? It's the woman whom you gave me. Again, the most fantastic of ideas. It was, and as a matter of fact, you're the one that sent her down here, took her out, and put, did this whole deal yourself. So I think you're to blame. It's ridiculous, right? I mean, as we read this, and as you think about it, your, your thought is, and my first thought is, uh, who, would, who would think that way? The thought is this. Since God allowed this situation, albeit for the sanctification and the growth of our spiritual maturity, right? That's what he's doing with it. Since he allowed this situation, I find him to blame when I had the wrong response and when I fail the testing of my faith, so to speak. But still, somehow, I'm, I'm looking for someone else to blame aside from me. And ultimately, I'm crying out against God. Well, he let me... He let me be in this situation, and I, and I didn't hold up under it, and so it's got to somehow be God's fault. And that just seems ludicrous to us just to say it out loud, but it, but it happens. It's sort of this philosophical sleight of hand that the real person to blame now gets dismissed. And so the finger doesn't point this way. We, we point it somewhere else, and ultimately, unfortunately, we point it to God. Hopefully, what you know about God and what you know to be the truth about yourself doesn't let that thought go very far in your life. Amen? Hopefully the goodness that you know of God says, oh, hey, that can't be true. And the sinfulness you know of yourself from Scripture helps you understand it, it can't be Him. It's got to be, it's got to be, it makes more sense that it would be something in me. Watch this. Let no one say to himself, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, 
You could add in there the word himself because in the Greek it uses the middle voice. And so in the middle voice in the Greek, it, it, it has the idea that the guy is thinking to himself when he is tempted. Who's, who's to blame for this? All right. So you have, you have yourself in the passage thinking who, who is to blame here. And James says, 13, lest we go down the wrong path in our theology, let's get it straight. Let no one say to himself when he is tempted what when he is tempted by evil i am being tempted by god let no one say to himself when he's being tempted i'm being tempted by god there's a couple different prepositions in the greek that that james could have used for that word translated by or some of your some of your translations may say for god let no one say when he is tempted that he is being tempted by or from God. Okay, That word by or from, it can be translated uh, from several different prepositions in the Greek. Most of the time, it's the, Greek, it's the Greek preposition hupo, which conveys this. It has this idea to it, that the direct, the direct uh, implication is that God is directly to blame. Okay, Does that make sense? So when he says, let no one say... Uh, that God is the one who tempts me, that I've been tempted by God, or the temptation comes from God, that word from isn't the word hupo, which means I'm being tempted directly from God. He chooses a more obscure preposition here, a less used preposition, as if to say to us, don't, don't even think, I mean, it would be beyond your imagination to think God directly tempts you to evil. But the preposition he uses is not that God would be directly to blame. It's, a, it's another preposition, apo, which conveys this idea, that even indirectly, so it's from or by God, not directly, but indirectly. Now, here, here's why this is important, or I wouldn't just bore you with random Greek, okay? Here's why this is important. It's as if James is saying, listen, don't, don't even go down the road of blaming God directly. You can't even do that. He uses another preposition to say, you can't even indirectly Accuse God of such a thing. Isn't that good? God's not even indirectly to blame for you being tempted to evil. Assuming that no one could accuse God. This is what John MacArthur said of the verse. Assuming that no one could accuse God of directly causing him to sin. James is saying that we should not even think of God as the remote origin of our temptation. Most men don't go as far as to see God as the direct tempter, but they do feel God is indirectly to blame by having permitted the situation and even the possibility of our failure. So what James is saying is that God is not the near agent of temptation, nor is he even the remote agent of our temptation. Don't go down that theological road. And so James in this verse, he says, let's get this clear. Let no man say to himself in the midst of his trial that's turning towards temptation, that he's not winning the battle. He's starting to fail the battle. He's going down the wrong road. Don't let him cry out and start pointing the finger in other places, especially don't let him cry out and point the finger at God, because God is not to blame here. And he gives us two reasons in this verse why God is not to blame. Watch this. Number one, God himself, he says, cannot be tempted by evil. Number two, he says, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So God himself can't be tempted by evil, nor does he even tempt anyone towards evil. Now, here's what, here's what this idea conveys. The character of God precludes him from even being touched by evil. The, the holiness, the separateness of God doesn't allow him to be 
tainted in that way. He can't be associated with evil. Scripture indicates that God is wholly separate. He's wholly other. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly good and true. There's no way that God can even be related. He's not even in the same category. He can't even be in the the same room, so to speak. Habakkuk 1.13 says it this way. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. And you can't even look upon iniquity. And there are many other. Scripture is replete with verses of God's holiness, his separateness, his otherness. God can't. He can't be associated with evil. That's what he means when he says God himself can't be tempted by evil. He's not in the same realm. And further from that, so he isn't involved with evil himself, nor would he be involved in leading someone else into evil, especially one of his children. It makes no sense. A good theology of God doesn't allow you to think that way. So so why isn't it God's fault? God's not associated with evil in any form or any fashion. From there, we ought to understand he he wouldn't, therefore, associate us to evil. He wouldn't press us towards evil. Remember, God is taking it in a positive way to build our faith. That's the intention of God. Now, verse 14 and 15, he tells us exactly who is to blame. Right? If God's not to blame, he tells us exactly who's to blame for our failures. No, it's not God. Uh, By the way, if, uh, if you're looking for... Uh, a self-help flavored gospel, uh, a doctrine of man that elevates our goodness, uh, you're not going to find it in Scripture. You're not going to find it here in the book of James. If you're looking for the passage that says you should feel better about yourself because you're basically a good person and there's really no evil in you uh, and there is someone else to blame, then you're not going to find that in biblical Christianity. Okay? Just want to throw that out there. He's going to give us here the truth. Now, let me just say this. The truth sets us free, by the way. It's going to be a hard truth that we're going to end up pointing the finger back at ourselves, right? You're pretty smart people. You know where this passage is going, okay? And, and this is going to be difficult that it's not God's fault. It's no one else's fault. When we fall into temptation and we go down the road towards sin and towards death, as he's going to explain here in a moment, when we end up in that process... Obviously, the finger's not pointing at God. It's pointed at us. And this is, once again, really good news. Because it's the truth. And the truth always sets us free. See, because once you get this, right? Once you get this straight, now you're able to deal with it. Once you get it straight, you're able to deal with it. The first step of AA is what? That you recognize the problem. You have to admit you're an alcoholic. Before you can go down the road of recovering from your alcohol Uh, addiction, you have to understand that there is actually an issue or a situation. There's a problem here. But until you come to understand that truth, you can't can't deal with the process. The first step to dealing with temptation and sin is to understand the basic process. Verses 14 and 15 are so simple, yet they're so helpful. To the believer fighting the good fight. If you get this, more of those trials, more of those situations where you can, you can be strengthened or you could fall into temptation, more of them will go the way of strengthening and maturing and perfecting your faith than they will the way of tempting towards sin, right? Because we're finding out now that they can go either way. But when we understand how the process works, when we get this step one of the temptation-sin process, this truth 
Although it's a hard truth and it points the finger right back at us, it helps us to understand how to deal. Watch this. Look at what he says. 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Uh, Next week, we're going to spend the entire week talking about that process. Those two verses are full. I'll just give you a little glimpse. When he says carried away, that's like that's like it's like a hunting term. It's like when when you set a trap for an animal when you hunt or when he says enticed, it's it's like a fishing term. It's, It's like the lure that entices the fish towards the bait. And so this whole this whole passage is pregnant with meaning here about the process. And it's literally pregnant with meaning because in 15, when he says, then when lust has conceived, it's the word for conceived. And he goes through this whole pregnancy picture here and how this thing grows. And it, and it finally births sin and death. Right. And so next week, we're going to come back to this. And we're going to talk about this whole process. We're going to go to Joshua 7. And we're going to look at a guy named Achan. And we're going to see him go through this very same process. We're going to go to some other verses. I want to talk to you next week about this process so that we can learn from the process of how we fall, how we go from being strengthened in the trial to how we go to failing under the temptation and falling into sin. I, I want to talk to you about that. But that's not the primary point of this passage. So I want to deal with that today, and then next week we're going to come back because those two verses give us great wisdom on how to deal with temptation. But watch this. Primarily what I want you to see in these verses is who's to blame. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? By his own lust. There's the culprit. You want to point the finger somewhere. It comes back to us. It's our own, and it is what he calls our own lust. Our own desires, our own selfish ambitions. But very simply, it's it's us. And for you, that is a, a different thing maybe than for me. We we all have our own flavor of personal desires that, that lead us that we could qualify as our own lust, that when conceived gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished brings forth death. Watch this. Remember that preposition I gave you earlier? That earlier in the, in the passage where he said, uh, let no one say when he is tempted that he's being tempted by, preposition by or from God. And he didn't use the word for by or from, meaning that it was directly from God. But he throws out the word, the less used preposition, uh, apo, which means he's not even the indirect. Okay, So he says you can't even blame God indirectly. Guess which one he uses here to point out who is the real culprit? Hupo. We are the direct culprit to blame. Namely, specifically, it is our lust. It is by or from our own self that is to blame. Isn't that good? It brings it full circle. Now watch this. What pulls us so strongly to the bait? It's not God. It's not Satan, his demons, or even the world's evil system that entice us to sin. Listen, although they bait the hook, right? So we can't blame someone else. Obviously, we can't blame God. Satan is called the great tempter, but we can't even blame him. James doesn't blame him. Is he a tempter? Yes. Does he, in a sense, bait the hook for us? Absolutely. Do his demons and all the evil realm of this whole world, does it contribute? Absolutely. But is it 
to blame? No. A correct doctrine of humanity points the finger directly back at us for our failure. Our flesh, our fallen nature, has a desire for evil. Lust is the cause of our sinning, not God, and not even the devil, demons, or wicked men. The latter three surrounded Christ through his entire life. Yet he never sinned because he had no lust. Nothing put on the hook attracted him in any way. Now listen to this. The problem is not the tempter without. It's the traitor within. The problem is not what's out there. It's, it's me. Now again, that's a hard word, but that's the truth. And the truth sets us free. The truth is the key that enables us to overcome. So that's good news, although it's a hard word. So what do we learn? Well, we learn we quit blaming, quit blaming God. We quit blaming others. We quit blaming circumstances. We quit blaming Satan. When we fall amidst our trial, it's 99.9. No, it's 100% of the time attributed to our own, what he calls, lustful ways. Now watch this. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. Now that can mean two things. It could refer to the previous verses. He could be coming off of telling you how this whole process works of, of, of when, when uh, lust has its way and, and, uh, and when it has conceived, it gives birth. He, he may be talking about that process, okay? When he says, do not be deceived. Don't, don't fall into that trap of temptation towards sin and death, okay? Beloved brethren, don't be deceived and go down that road. He, that, could be, that could be what he means. Or this verse could be connecting to the following verses where he's going to tell us exactly who God is. Remember, his point here starting out was that it's not God to blame. In fact, God is not related to evil in any way, nor can he be related to tempting man towards evil. So let's get this thing straight on who's to blame. Let's talk about how the process works. Let's find the culprit and it's us. And so he says, don't be deceived. So what does it mean? Don't be deceived, like don't fall into temptation and go down that route and get into that whole process. Could be. Or don't be deceived, meaning, listen, don't be deceived in thinking that it was God because it was really you. The answer, I think, is it's both. I think it's a tremendous, a tremendous play on words here. And it connects both thoughts. Don't fall into temptation. Don't be deceived and go down that road. But also, theologically, don't be deceived into thinking that it's someone else's fault other than your own. That would be in error. So watch this. In 17 and 18, he's going to give us a picture of God. He's going to give us a clear picture of God. How should we view God amidst our trials? Now watch this. This is how he leaves us in this whole situation of trials and temptations that are built into our life that we are to consider joy, knowing that they're for the testing of our faith, that produce endurance, endurance having its perfect result, building into us perfection and maturity. If we, if we need wisdom, cry out to God. He's willing to give it to those who are faithful, who trust him, not those who are sitting on the fence. I don't know if I really trust God, believe God. If he's sovereign, he's not. I don't even know that he's really involved at all, et cetera, et cetera. No, but to those who are crying out to him in faith, that they're trusting that he wants the best for them, that God knows the best, et cetera, he's going to give you that wisdom. And no matter what your lot in life is, Okay, 
You can, you can know that in the end, it's not based on your status in this life. Death is a great equalizer, okay? So don't fret if you're down here, and don't get too proud if you're up here, all right? Now, God is not to blame. Now, watch this. Let me tell you about our God, because this is the God you can trust through that whole process. Verse 17. He's going to tell us that basically he's, he's solid. He is a trustworthy, unmovable, faithful God. And then in 18, he's going to say not only is God trustworthy and unmovable, but his dealings with us are beyond question. Watch. Here's a correct perspective of God. 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. A a more wooden translation, if you just pulled it right out of the Greek word for word, it'd it'd be more like this. Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It seems somewhat redundant. He uses every twice and he uses, a, he uses what we get here translated, the word gift, twice. He says it, it says it twice. But in the Greek, for the word gift, it's two different words. All right? Now, again, I'm not just giving you random Greek words here because you know, I'm trying to show you that I know Greek or whatever. I don't know a whole lot of Greek. But this is, this is good right here. Listen. Okay? The first word for gift he uses is not an emphasis on the gift itself. It's an emphasis on the giving of a gift. So it's as if to say, and the translators attempt to to convey this in saying more than just every good gift and every perfect gift. They, in my translation, say every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. What What the word for gift there implies is, is that not the gift itself, but the way the gift is given is good. So what does it say about our God? The way he gives us gifts, the attitude that he gives to us is beyond question. God's giving to us is perfect. It's good. It's not evil. And then he follows that up and he says every gift itself is good. And that word gift is an emphasis not on the process of giving, but the act, not the act of giving, but the gift itself. So here's what it says. Here's what he's trying to tell us. That the gift God gives us is good. And we should amen that. But not only that, the way God gives us gifts, that's perfect as well. So God's giving and the thing he gives us, they're beyond reproach. That's our God. He's not a God who tempts us with evil. He's the furthest thing from evil. He couldn't do that and he wouldn't do it to his children. So the way he gives us gifts and the gifts he gives us, they're, they're perfect. Watch this. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Look at the way he describes. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. This is an ancient Jewish reference to God. It's typically used to emphasize the fact that God is the creator of everything. He's the creator of all the physical world. In the Old Testament, we find out in Genesis that God created all the lights of the heavens, the sun, the moon, the earth, all the stars and the planets up there that we see twinkling and they move around seemingly from our perspective. They move and they shift and some are brighter and some are dull and the sun comes and it goes and the moon comes and it goes, etc. They're all in a sense shifting. And our God, he is what is he? What does it say? He's the father of all those lights. Why does he use that? Here's why. 
because it fits his illustration. Our God, he gives perfect gifts. And the way he gives the gifts are perfect. And as a matter of fact, he's the creator of all the universe. He created everything. And being the one who created all this, he's, he's actually nothing like what we see from our perspective. Let, let, me, say it, uh, let me say it as one commentator did because uh, I can't say it any better. The lights referred to are the sun, moon, stars. James chose that title because it fits his illustration. God created the celestial bodies, but with him there's no variation or shifting like there is with them. From our perspective, the sun, the moon, the stars move, they disappear, they change in shape, they vary in intensity. Their benefit to us is coming and going. God is not, however, like that. His brilliant light of glory and gracious goodness does not change. God doesn't pass from one condition to another or change like shadows do as the sun moves. His grace never goes dark. You see the picture? He's the father of lights. He's the creator of those things. He's absolutely in control of them. There is no shifting, no shadow, no shadiness with our God. He's not up to any funny games here. He's not pulling the old bait and switch on us. He's not saying in one passage that, hey, I'm trying to grow you in your spirituality here and hoping we trip up and fall over here. He's not to blame. The blame falls directly on us. He's the father of lights. There is no variation, no shifting shadow. There's nothing to question in our God. He's rock solid. All right, so that's what he tells us about him. Now look at his dealings with us. Here's where he leaves us. Verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. It's that word for conception again. It's that pregnant word, once again, that he uses back. If you circled it, you can draw a line back to verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, in the exercise of his will, he conceived us and brought forth us by what? Evil? No. The word of his truth. So that we would be what? So that we would fail? No. So that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God has a tremendous plan for our spiritual growth, and it is a positive plan. Is God to blame at all? When we face the trial, verse 2, we have an option. Consider it all joy because we know something. We know that it's. It's an opportunity for us to build our endurance spiritually, build our spiritual muscles, so to speak. And if we let it do its work, it'll perfect us. We'll reach our goal. We'll become like the firstborn among many brethren. We'll become like Christ. We'll become those joint heirs with Jesus if we suffer like he. Romans 5. But we've got to remain under the load. If you don't get that, Cry out to God. He'll give you wisdom. Part of the wisdom is knowing that no matter what your status in life, in the end, it all balances out. God is a great equalizer. In death, no matter what our lot in life, that's not an indicator of our eternity. Well, what if I face it and I, I fail? What if I, what if I face this opportunity for the betterment of my spirituality and I go the wrong way? I don't let it, I don't let it grow me It tests me. I go into that trial and it proves me in that situation. It proves my faith to be weak. Maybe at that moment, maybe in that way, maybe at that time. And I go down the road of temptation. I let it do its its thing. 
I let it do its work. Instead of going through the work of sanctification and spiritual growth and endurance with God, I let temptation take me down that road and I let it grow me in that way and I let it cause me to fall in that way. James says, let no man going down that road turn around and say, if this God is the God who allowed me to be in a situation to grow me this way, couldn't it therefore then be his fault over here when I fail to grow? He says, man, don't, don't go that way. Our God is not that kind of God. He's not associated with any kind of evil like that. He would never, he would never press you towards that type of evil. The truth is that it works itself out in our own sinfulness. As believers, this is still true. We have residing in us a residue of our flesh. It's what Scripture calls, what James calls our lust here. And our flesh calls out to us. And it wars against our spirit. And it says, go this way, not this way. God says, go this way. Our spirit says, go this way. And our flesh, that residue of our humanity that is left, even while we are in Christ, here on this earth, we're dragging around this old carcass of our flesh. It cries out against us and says, "Now, nah, man, go this way. And it's an opportunity for growth, and that's what, that's what God intends for it to do in us. God uses it for that. James says, make no mistake, God's not using it in any way. It's not his fault if it goes that way. There's no shiftiness with our God. There's no... There's no playing games with our God. God has your best in mind, and that is it. Next week, come back. We'll figure out how this process of temptation towards the evil and death works. See if we can find our way. Where do we break that process? Where do we get back on track towards growth and perfection and maturity that he's called us to? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we have a couple questions that are left. One is, what can we say? What can we say after a passage like this? We have, we have to, I suppose, say that, that you are not to blame, that you are good. You are a good and holy God. You have our best in mind. And the truth is, we, we can't point the finger especially at you, especially at you. Oh God, you, you, are, you are rock solid and you're holy and you're righteous and you are perfect. And the gifts you give, they're good. And the way you give those gifts, that's good. There is no shadow when we look at you. Everything is in perfect, glorious light. So now, Lord, what are we left to do? Perhaps we're left to repent. We're left to repent in the presence of such a good God. We're left to hate our sin, claim our forgiveness, and praise you as a, as a holy God, the Father, creator of the lights. I think that's where we're left. Help us, Lord no matter where we are on that path towards spiritual growth or maybe perhaps some of us are in different ways and in different times and to different degrees in different little pockets of our life different little 
sections of our heart and our mind, etc., we're going, we're going down that road towards temptation. Father, help us. Illuminate that path for us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Yeah. That's your desire for us. That, that's, that's what you request we pray. So God, we pray that. We, we ask that for any of us who, who have part of us that are going down the wrong path, would you illuminate that path? Help us to recognize it and turn back towards endurance under whatever the struggle is, whatever the trial is, whatever the test is, whatever the, the tempting is towards good or evil, help us to run towards good, knowing that you are a good and perfect God. So we're left examining our hearts. Help us, Lord. Help us. As we wrap up, uh, I'm just going to ask you to stay seated. I want you to stay in an attitude of prayer. We typically don't end our services in such a solemn way. But we've, uh, we've had more of an unplugged day today. And uh, this, is, this is one of those passages where uh, staring at the floor might be a better way to end than standing with our hands raised. So this morning, uh, why don't you go through your life with that fine-tooth comb? Allow God, allow the Holy Spirit to go through your heart, through your mind with that fine-tooth comb. Look for, those, look for those places where your heart, maybe just that small pocket of your heart, maybe that small place in your mind is going down the wrong path. Cry out to God to illuminate those places, however small or big they might be and ask ask the spirit to help you to hate that sin cry out for his help in repenting and then here's where I think you need to end here's where I think where we all need to end in this process of repentance it's with a smile on our face although I'm asking you to stay seated and and, and and, and let this be a contemplative moment here as we wrap up. Uh, we end this with a, with a great big smile on our face because our God is a good and gracious God. And His desire is for His children to walk a path of righteousness and holiness. He wants to give you that wisdom in the situation no matter what it is. He wants to help you in that situation. He desires to be a strength as you repent. And so as you wrap up your dealings with God in your heart, uh, I hope it ends with a smile on your face. I hope the words of this song help you to deal with whatever pocket is in your life, in my life. But as you end, end, end like this. God, you are, you are so good and so gracious. Thank you for the truth of your word. And I'm running as fast and as hard away from my sinfulness as I can. And there's no way that I, could, that I could ever even imagine pointing the finger back towards such a good and holy God. And we'll leave here with a, with a great big smile on our face and a full and encouraged heart because we have that good God. Amen? Amen. All right, why don't you pray as Ricky sings this last song for us.
Jesus, I fall. 